I think we see real challenges to folks who might lose their housing because they don't have internet access and the digital skills and the devices to complete, for example, an online rent certification. And I think that poses real challenges for everyone in the ecosystem. Welcome to Buzz House, a Bacon Tilly podcast where you can hear all the buzz around multifamily housing with all the info you need to help you win now and anticipate tomorrow. Hi, I'm Don Bernards, the partner in charge of Baker Tilly's multifamily housing practice. And I'm Gary Gibson, a partner at Baker Tilly, also specializing in consulting on multifamily housing transactions across the country. Let's get started. Derek and I are excited to cover a topic we haven't discussed yet on the podcast, and that is of internet infrastructure. So many of us take this for granted, but the COVID pandemic has really exposed the impacts of not having quality internet infrastructure with so many jobs now remote, applying for jobs online, really can make navigating everything difficult if, if we don't have uh, quality internet infrastructure. And again, kids at home during COVID and now back at school, but research and really into a lot of this, but obviously kids may be falling behind and so forth. Very excited again to discuss digital equity and how we're able to work towards achieving this, as he will describe as CEO and founder of Connect Humanity, Yochai Ben-Avi. Thank you very much for joining us, Yochai. Thanks for having me. Before we jump into our discussion, uh, just a few updates from around the industry. A couple of big pieces of news in the state low-income housing tax credit space. Texas will now have a state low-income housing tax credit beginning January 1st of 2024, after Governor Greg Abbott recently signed enacting legislation. The program creates a credit for up to the amount of the federal light tech allocation for each property with an annual statewide cap of $25 million. The state credit has a sunset date of December 31st, 2029. Also, and we had talked about this a little bit earlier on another podcast, Ohio budget legislation was signed recently by Governor Mike DeWine, creating a state loan housing tax credit and also a tax credit to promote single-family affordable homeownership. The state light tech program is a cap of $100 million annually, so very significant, for affordable properties placed in service on or after July 1st, 2023. The home ownership credit will cover the gap between the development budget and the state's estimate of the appraised value of the finished home. There's a statewide cap of $50 million per year for the home ownership program, and both credits have a sunset date of June 30th, 2027. Finally, the State of the Nation's Housing 2023 report was recently published by the Joint Center for Housing Studies of Harvard University. So, it's a, a piece of information that I know Derek and I usually take a look through. A quick summary of this report is on the for sale side, home sales and construction levels are declining, as is the pace of home price appreciation, while rental markets are actually experiencing uh, reduced rent growth and somewhat rising vacancy rates. Nevertheless, home prices and rents, of course, remain elevated from pre-pandemic levels. Millions of households remain priced out of home ownership, grappling with housing cost burdens or lacking shelter altogether, including a disproportionate share of people of color, increasing the need for policies to address the national housing shortfall at the root of the affordable affordability crisis. So again, please take a look at the Joint Center for Housing Studies of Harvard University's State of the Nation's Housing 2023 report. Now, with that, very excited to turn over to Garrick to jump into our discussion. Garrick? Thanks for that intro, Don and Joe. Hi, welcome to the show. To begin, why don't you please tell us, uh, uh, tell us and our listeners a little bit about your professional background and your organization, uh, Connect Humanity. Thanks so much, Garrick. After hopping around a couple of fields, which included a 
very brief stint in affordable housing at the Beacon Companies. Most of my career has been at sort of the intersection of tech and human rights. Uh, I worked in an organization called Access Now, which has a mission to defend and extend the digital rights of users at risk around the world. I was their first policy director and helped build them into one of the sort of largest organizations working on internet policy in the world. And through that, I got to meet a lot of nonprofits, governments, you know, investors, companies, big and small. Mozilla was one of those companies, uh, maker of the Firefox browser, was advising them on policy things before they had a team. And so when they finally decided to build a policy team, they uh, asked me to come aboard. And for many years, I was the head of international public policy, as well as the head of Mozilla's uh, funding arm. And so between those two hats covered a lot of ground, but including connecting the unconnected Mozilla believes that the internet is a global public resource, open and accessible to all, um, accessible to all peace, uh, which is probably why the man who would go on to become my co-founder, Chris Werman, uh, one day called me and said, hey, we should really talk about what building back better even means. And as you know, Don was alluding to earlier uh, in the intro in terms of what are the needs the pandemic has exposed? And, you know, we were we were talking about kids who were losing, you know, a year or more of education. Right. And that's on top of the homework gap that existed before. You know, we were talking about folks who were struggling to provide for their families faced with this impossible choice between exposing themselves to COVID and helping to feed their families and people who were struggling to talk to a doctor or get accurate information uh, about COVID. And at a certain point, I said, you know, y'all may all come from different walks and causes, but um, (laughs) you're all talking about connectivity here. And so united in this sense that it doesn't have to be this way, that half the world lacks reliable, affordable access to the internet. And that's not just a problem in developing countries. You know, really, Connect Humanity was founded to address the gap that has left one in three Americans without internet speeds fast enough to use Zoom. 42 million Americans don't have any internet access. And this disproportionately affects communities of color. Uh, You know, something like 40% of Black folks don't have any internet access. About 35% of Latinos uh, and we'll talk about this a little bit more, but, you know, th- that number on indigenous lands is in some cases upwards of 50%. I was talking to a, a housing developer the other day who told me that 80% of their residents don't even have an email address. There was a recent study of resident services coordinators in 49 states that showed that only 8% of RSCs believe that their residents have reliable internet access. Connect Humanity works with low-income, racially diverse, and rural communities to help them get connected to high-speed, affordable internet access and participate fully in our digital economy. And so we're we're sort of uniquely positioned between communities in need, the sort of small and medium ISPs that we think are best positioned to end the digital divide, and sort of the funder, investor, sort of capital worlds. And uh, we provide sort of capacity building to all three communities, ISPs, uh, and sort of investors. And then we build the capacity and readiness, which unlocks the partnerships that actually can help to get high speed, affordable internet and the sort of enabling services like digital literacy device access um, to actually get built. And then our investment arm really helps to sort of provide the financing to make those plans a reality. Um, And so we generally start with a community champion that might be a housing developer. It might be a mayor. It might be a nonprofit. You know, depending on the needs of that particular community, and that community might be as small as one property or as big as the biggest one we probably did was the city of Detroit. We'll then sort of provide the right blend of advice and occasionally grants 
and then, you know, work to help figure out how do we capitalize that plan, um, including uh, investment from us. Well, thanks for that intro. And, you know, those are some alarming statistics, uh, you know, generally speaking, we, we, you know, we take it for granted a lot of times the type of access that we have on a normal day-to-day basis. I mean, you know, you can get connected in pretty much everywhere in, in most like metro cities. And so thanks for that, giving us those statistics and and giving the, the, a little background about your organization. So let's dig a little deeper. Let's get into the why behind your organization. In other words, like what are the many issues that you're seeing because of the lack of access? You know, I've spent my career at the intersection of, of tech and human right because I believe the internet is this gateway to the realization of a number of different, you know, rights and causes and things that we care about, right? And so, you know, we saw the, it's not just the internet for the internet's sake, right? It's the internet because it enables kids to access, you know, the near totality of human knowledge to do their homework and to learn and to grow. And we see what happens, kids losing two years of education or more and continuing to struggle. Um, You know, I think we live in a country where 80% of jobs are posted online only, right? And so, you know, if you care about economic opportunity, you care about, you know, participation in the economy, wealth creation, you got to care about internet access. You know, you care about, you know, the U.S. government has considered internet access to actually be a social, super social determinant of health, right? You know, we see, pick any health variable, right? You want to look at mortality. You want to look at cost of care. You want to look at emergency room visits. Everything is hurt when you don't have internet access. And the flip side is we've seen really promising examples of when folks have gotten connected, their emergency room visits go down, their length, you know, their, their quality of life improves, their length of life improves, um, you know, and there's sort of a, a lot of real power from just, you know, a really truly saving lives perspective. One thing I just want to sort of underscore for your audience is, you know, during the pandemic, we also saw a lot of housing uh, assistance, housing certification services moving online. And we're now in a situation where, you know, look, I think paper-based systems were were kind of a pain for everyone involved. Um, But, you know, I think we see real challenges to folks who might lose their housing because they don't have internet access and the digital skills and the devices to complete, for example, an online rent certification. And I think that poses real challenges for everyone in the ecosystem. Maybe jumping into, took a little bit on, you know, look at your website and so forth, but can you tell our listeners, you know, what, what is your model? You know, how do you pull us all together around digital equity? We often say digital equity starts with infrastructure, but it doesn't end there. And so we sort of look at this as sort of five interrelated things that need to exist. And so one is the infrastructure, the actual connectivity itself, um, but also the infrastructure. I would put devices, right? Like, you know, an internet signal is not so useful unless you have a high quality device to use it. And, you know, I think we know that things like writing a resume or, or rent certifications are a lot easier on a laptop than they are on a low quality smartphone. I think the next is affordability. You know, we have a real challenge where there may be service, but folks can't afford it. And especially in low-income communities uh, and the history of redlining that exists in the U.S., the markup had this great report that showed that uh, poor folks can pay up to 400 times as much for the same or worse service as folks who live in whiter, more affluent communities. So we really got to solve for that sort of affordability 
third area for us is skills. You know, even if you have an affordable signal, if you don't have the digital literacy, the skills to use that, it doesn't really matter. And sort of final two points of our model is sort of locally relevant content. Again, it doesn't really, it's not the internet for the internet's sake. It's the internet because of the opportunity that it enables, right? And so you got to show folks when you're trying to get them to use the internet that, you know, you can use the internet to find a job. You can use the internet to, you know, find different services, uh, find your community, you know, talk to your doctor. I've been a policy wonk throughout my career. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, we're, we're three weeks or three years into the pandemic and I'm still wearing a blazer. But, um, you know, I think there's a whole lot that government and regulators could do to accelerate the rate at which folks are connecting. And so policy is also sort of an important part here. But I think when we zoom out of that sort of model of sort of how do we understand digital equity, you know, I think we generally know how to connect the unconnected. That's been both in sort of the most frustrating and inspiring part of me, of my work uh, on this issue for many years. Like we, we generally know how to do this, but that knowledge is siloed. Uh, it's not, you know, well distributed. Um, you know, certainly a lot of the housing developers that I talk to don't know about some of the opportunities um, of how to better connect their residents. And I think related to this is, you know, we have too much reliance on sort of the biggest incumbent telecom operators, your AT&Ts and Comcasts of the world. I would say like most folks probably could name five ISPs, maybe. There are 2,800 licensed ISPs in the country. And 60% of the market serves fewer than 500 census blocks. 25% of the market serves fewer than 70 census blocks. And it's these really small and medium ISPs that are providing the best services at the fastest speeds at the lowest cost. And if you look at the top 10 fastest ISPs in the country, none of them are AT&T. Uh, they're all these kind of small and medium sort of community-focused ISPs. The final thing I would say is that capital really sort of continues to be the challenge. There's a lot of folks who know that they need internet or need better internet, whether that's residents or that's owners or that's, you know, RSCs. And I think what we see, you know, in our work with housers is sort of three sort of issues that sort of flow through this. Like one is the sort of knowledge level. You know, a lot of folks don't know about some of the tools um, that exist today, the different types of operators, nonprofits offering digital literacy services, new federal subsidies. I think there's a lack of capacity is the second issue. You know, we see Resident services coordinators are busy folks. Housing developers are busy folks. You know, this is a big, complicated issue and they don't always have the time to sort of work this out. So they turn to brokers who may not always be looking out for the best interests of, you know, their residents. And I think this real lack of capital, you know, continue, especially for stable assets, continues to be a challenge. But I think all three of those, you know, education sort of capacity, capital has changed substantially in the last 18 months. Perfect. Very interesting. And we're going to get into, you know, maybe some some case studies or specifics, you know, in a little bit. I don't know, maybe this is the right wording or the right questions, but but funding, you know, do you help with funding some of the infrastructure or what are some of the sources? Maybe just a little bit, but I know we'll maybe save a little bit. We'll get into some case studies and things. Sure. Yeah. I think on our sort of capacity building philanthropic program side of the house at Connect Humanity, you know, we are giving grants. So right now, for example, we have a program uh, in 12 states in Appalachia, the Appalachian Digital Accelerator, where we're providing planning support to 50 of the least connected communities um, across the region to really help them get ready for the BEAD, the Broadband Equity Access and Deployment Act. This is the administration's $42 billion signature initiative to expand broadband uh, in the U.S., 
And so we'll give, you know, at times grants to help sort of build up that capacity and to build those plans. Um, but really sort of the heart of the organization is on the finance side. Um, and so our we have an impact investment arm that's really sort of working generally with ISPs. You know, you sort of want to keep your money as close to uh, <laughs> your investment as close to where the money is. But, you know, I think we'd be open to working with housers. We've also worked with low-income municipalities. So we'll do three verticals in our investment program. One is project finance. So that sort of might be one property, one ISP, repayments primarily coming from the ISP. Our preferred tool there is is revenue-based financing. But we were also finding sometimes that we were talking to one ISP or time sort of housers uh, around sort of, you know, five different properties, five different communities and rather than sort of incurring, you know, underwriting five transactions, which is expensive for everyone involved, you know, we do sort of an enterprise credit kind of model, um, looking at sort of the sort of the whole organizations, whole companies sort of balance sheet. Um, and then we have our innovative financing fund, which is really sort of exploring and pioneering new investment structures that really sort of solve hard problems. So, for example, we're financing device access through a sort of innovative scheme that sees us effectively loaning money to the ISP to buy laptops for folks in need. And as long as the user continues to use that laptop on that network, which say they're a revenue generating customer, then we get a slice of their monthly revenue up to some cap. And I think we're really excited about some of the developments that we've been seeing in the housing world, right? So we see more, for example, LiTech QAPs are now including, you know, providing high-speed internet access and so like in New York state, for example, that's now a requirement in the QAP. In other states like Pennsylvania, you're now getting extra points on your application. I think the new section eight renewal guidance that came out earlier this year is fascinating. Sort of recognizing this is like maybe two months ago, uh, now sort of allows broadband as a non-shelter expense and sort of valuations. Uh, and so I think that creates opportunities to effectively get you know HUD to help pay for providing that service in Section Eight properties, um, and really sort of looking to work with partners um, to really figure out how do we unlock the capital and the financing structure that's really going to make this a success for everyone involved. Yeah, thanks for that. It's uh, interesting, you know, the different layers of uh, financing mechanisms that you're trying to employ. I know we wanted to get into some case studies, but you mentioned indigenous programs. Can you just tell us a little bit about some of your specific indigenous programs? Absolutely. Thanks for the question, Garrick. Connect Humanity is home to the Indigenous Connectivity Institute, which is the only organization focused on digital equity led by a fully indigenous advisory committee. And probably the flagship of the ICI is the annual Indigenous Connectivity Summit that we had just a couple months ago in Alaska. That brought together, I don't know, something like 150 leaders in tribal, native, and indigenous connectivity, an opportunity for folks to really learn from each other, sort of see what's happening on different reservations and nations across the U.S. and Canada, and sort of do, there's a series of sort of skill building on both the technical side and the policy side for indigenous leaders to sort of learn about sort of connectivity. And, And we've seen, you know, a number of networks come out of that, people building sovereign tribal ISPs, which is super exciting. I think the sort of second bit is we do these tribal broadband boot camps. We'll have another one uh, next month with uh, the Mohawk up on the New York-Canada border in Akwesasne. And those are really sort of four-day intensive sort of workshops where you'll do, you know, really learn 
how, roll up in your sleeves, like how to crimp fiber, how to configure a radio, how to, you know, splice fiber, but also sort of what does it mean on the business side to run an ISP? And I think those really help to sort of build skills, to build confidence, to build a network of folks who are similarly situated on other tribal lands. And we're building on that to sort of build out a larger workforce development program to really sort of build the pathway of the you know, network technicians and operators and installers and training indigenous youth in particular to operate the sovereign tribal networks of the future. Mm, that's awesome. So then let's tie all this together. And maybe the, is there a case study you can talk about that kind of illustrates how you've implemented all of this? Yeah, I would say let's zoom in on East Carroll Parish, Louisiana. So East Carroll, just to help situate is Northeast Louisiana. It's a rural community. It's um, about, it's arguably the poorest county in the United States. So about 73% of children live in poverty. About a quarter of the population lives on less than 10 grand a year. Uh, it's about 90% black. And right now their only internet option is dial up. That costs more than 90 bucks a month. And when we first started talking, so our first step is find a community champion. In this case, it was an interfaith association, Delta Interfaith. And because uh, when you have so little, you know, tax revenue, you also don't have a whole lot of functioning local government. Um, and so it's really, you know, church going folks who are sort of stepping up to help here. And first started talking to them, they said, well, you know, how fast can we get AT&T here? And I said, well, I don't, I don't know if that's the question I would ask. You can build your own internet and we'll help you to do that. And so gave them a planning grant and really worked with them to sort of map out where would you build a network? How would you build it? What technology connected them with a pretty enlightened ISP that was operating in the adjacent community and really helped to sort of broker that deal. And then uh, do community engagement and sort of see what we need around sort of digital literacy, device access, and so forth. And then we, on the base of that plan, uh, helped them apply for a grant from the state. They got $4 million. They might be thinking like, $4 million, that's amazing. It's a lot of money. And, and it is, but it will also cost about $10 million to, to build fiber to every address in this county. Uh, and so now we're working with them on a uh, on a package, uh, a financing package that will help the, we help them to create a local broadband foundation, which will own the infrastructure. And then the ISP will basically lease the infrastructure from the community. So that way the debt is tied to the lease back, which allows the community to really be in control of this network, you know, make sure rates stay affordable, make sure they're building the places they say they're going to build. But from the ISP perspective, they're effectively getting the sort of revenue potential of a $10 million asset without having to spend any of their own money on CapEx, um, which is also a pretty exciting sort of business opportunity. One other maybe housing example that might be sort of interesting, we took a look at, um, I believe it's 100% Section 8 property in New York City. And there, you know, this building was never wired up. Uh, and so about 80% of residents don't have any internet access at all. And so this um, ISP came in that we invested in, came in and they're providing a 200 megabit symmetrical fiber connection. And just for those less technical, that is a very fast internet that is faster than the connection I have right now in Palo Alto, uh, California. And um, it costs $30 a month, which is a really important number to remember because it is the equivalent of the federal subsidy, the Affordable Connectivity Program, for low-income families to access uh, telecommunications. And living in many types of subsidized housing 
automatically qualifies someone for the ACP. And so all these residents were automatically qualified for the ACP. And then they actually integrated the ACP enrollment process into their customer signup process. And so these residents are getting this super fast internet for free to them. And then from the ISP perspective, that subsidy goes directly to the ISP. What this does is it transforms what used to be your riskiest customer, right? Low-income uh, households and individuals and makes them this sort of guaranteed floor of $30 per month um, per family. And they think that's really sort of revolutionizing how we think about financing internet builds in affordable housing properties in particular. That's news. I mean, that, thank you for those case studies, but I will probably follow up with you on that ACP. I had, I had no idea that existed because to your point, it's just a good thing to do, but these it's in states QAPs. I, it's what a what a good tidbit. It's a small tidbit, but a huge tidbit. And Don, if I can just double down on that, in tribal uh, communities uh, and reservations and native lands, the ACP benefit is seventy five dollars per month oh, wow. per household. Oh, so just wanted to flag that. And there's also specific infrastructure funding for indigenous communities that is available right now to uh, to build out connectivity and broadband infrastructure on tribal lands. Um, that's separate from the BEAD program, the $42 billion program that is available. Very good. No, very good. All kinds of good information. A little bit earlier, you, you briefly mentioned you know, advocacy, and I know you said you've a lifelong of, of advocacy and Yokai and so forth. What, you know, again, many of our listeners are in the affordable housing space, what, what can we kind of be talking to our senators and other advocates? What, what can we be doing around the space? A few things come to mind, and I'll go from uh, from more housing-related to less housing-related. You know, I think one is we're seeing movement on LIHTC, you know, QAPs on Section 8. I think part of that is taking advantage of those opportunities, but I think engaging where this is sort of the first wave, I think, of, um, you know, putting this into the QAP. And I think there should be some engagement with folks who write those standards around sort of how to craft that in ways that are going to work for housing developers. Um, I think the second area, you know, the Community Reinvestment Act has obviously been a major source of funding for housing. We see a tremendous potential to use CRA for broadband. The woman who wrote the Fed, Dallas Fed, put out guidance a few years ago on using CRA for broadband um, by a woman named Jordana Barton-Garcia, who we are privileged to have as a senior fellow at Connect Humanity. But I think getting that sort of recognition of using CRA funds in that way can provide, you know, a really compelling source of low cost capital to be building out um, sort of network services as you're building out a property. ACP, huge opportunity. ACP also runs out of funding or is slated to run out of funding next year. So there's going to need to be congressional action to extend the ACP. And I think really the Hill needs to hear from everyone right now just how important this program is to delivering affordable access. And so would definitely encourage um, housing owners, developers to be, you know, get in the mix there, call your congressman, call your senator about the importance of that, because I think it's really going to fundamentally changes the math of how you provide service to your residents. And then the final thing I'll say is, you know, bead planning is going on right now. Um, so in order to qualify for funding under BEAD, the Broadband Equity Access and Deployment Act, this $42 billion program, you need a plan. And so the, the plans happen at the local level. The 
guidance requires that you map and list out all the community anchor institutions in your community, which should be prioritized for funding. However, uh, <laughs> you know, and, and, and I'll say housing, affordable housing is considered to be community, um, uh, community anchor institution um, pretty much throughout the country. But it really is dependent on who's running that local process, whether they're going to count your property as a CAI and therefore be prioritized for funding. So right now, planning is underway in communities across the country. We're expecting the bead application windows, which will go be from the state broadband offices, um, will open up in spring of next year. Um, and we're expecting what we're hearing from our conversations with state broadband offices is it's going to be relatively short application windows. So you really need to like be planning now. You can't start planning when when that opens up. I would say being in touch with, you know, your local, whoever's leading your local planning, um, certainly in the communities where we're, you know, working on plans, we love to be in touch with housers to sort of make sure that you're included in the plans that we're already supporting. Um, but I would say those are probably sort of top priorities. Perfect. No, thank you again. And really just one last question, probably many more questions, but one last question for today. Sure. Like you, those statistics, again, were really so overwhelming early on, you know, if it's only one in three in the United States and 42 million people. That, I mean, what's a good use of your time? When should someone reach out to you if they are, you know, if they are a houser, an owner of housing, if they are a planning commission person for a city? I mean, is it all the above? I mean, again, I'm sure you or what, what's a good what's a good a time to reach out to you? So, you know, we do basically nothing without a, a community champion, right? There's a lot of need out there in the country and in the world. We go generally where there's demand and where there's folks who want to sort of work with us. So I would say if you are serious about, you know, better connecting your residents, I think, you know, we would love to sort of talk to you and figure out how to best do that. And that can be at the sort of educational level to sort of talk through some of the options that are available to, hey, I have a building in construction and, you know, we're starting to think about how do we bring in sort of internet access? I think it's going to be a little bit different depending on whether we're talking about like new development versus, you know, like a stable asset, you know, obviously different tools available, you know, on the new development side, I would say it helps to be a little bit earlier on to make sure that you can get this like into your LIHTC application into, you know, before your, your construction specs are locked, you know, it helps to sort of have a little bit of an engineering conversation, you know, stable assets, obviously a sort of different ballgame. Very good. That's it for today's episode of The Buzz House. A big thanks uh, to Yochai uh, Benavi uh, very much for joining us today. Tell us a story about digital equity and, and everything you're doing at Connect Humanity. Thank you very much for being with us today. Thanks so much, guys. Once again, I'm Don Bernards. And I'm Garrett Gibson. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. For additional resources around multifamily housing, check out BakerTilly.com. If you have a suggestion for the show, email us at buildabakertilly.com. That's B-U-I-L-D at BakerTilly.com. See you next time on Buzz House. Buzz House.